Good evening. Well, as we begin, let me begin first by uh, introducing the elders we selected. I, I asked earlier, I asked uh, Ben and Dave uh, how I should introduce them, and they said, just tell everyone you pick your favorite elders. And I so. But anyway, we have with us tonight on the far end there, Dave Jenkins, who is our youngest physically, our youngest elder. Then we have Ben, who sometimes he's mistaken as Steve's younger brother. <laughs> uh, of course, you all know Steve. And then we have Mike Mitchell, who's our newest elder. And so as we begin, let me explain that we held the other Q&A back on the 24th of July, and we couldn't finish all the questions. Plus, we had received so many more that we decided to hold another session to try to finish them. And as I told you last time, I've reworded some of the questions to make them more grammatically correct or read a little better, but I've done my best to avoid changing the meaning of the question in any way. And I've also combined some questions that were basically the same question. And understand that our answers are very brief. For the sake of time, we cannot answer every question as completely as some would like. There are entire books written on some of these matters, and we're going to only give each one two or three minutes at the most. I've asked the guys to keep their answers short because we have 23 questions to try to get through. And if you want a more complete explanation, come see us and we'll tell you where you can research it further. So let's get started. We're going to start with Dave on the end. The first question goes like this. Regarding the persons of the Trinity, the relationship of the terms father and son are confusing. The clear implication is that the Son derived from the Father, as is the case in human relationships. We know that the rest of Scripture shows that this is not true. How can we better explain to others the truth of this apparent inconsistency? Okay. <clears throat> I'd like to phone a friend. <laughs> no, there is, uh, there's a lot here, so I'm going to try and do this, as you've mentioned, Bruce, in, in two to three minutes and put some notes to try and do that. Well, First, we, we need to remember that the Trinity is a mystery, and, and no one can uh, fully understand it. It's what's called supra-rational, which is to say that it's, it's beyond human comprehension. And part of why it is beyond human comprehension is because that there's no analogy in human experience which can be applied to the Trinity. But the Trinity is one God existing eternally, as three distinct persons, which we see in many places in Scripture. Now, we could go to Matthew 3, 16 and 17. You could see that distinction at the baptism of Jesus. But each person of the Trinity is entirely God, and they are co-equal in essence. But as the question states, and where I think some of the confusion can come to bear, is the names given to each person of the Trinity. But we need to remember that these names are designations given to us in Scripture to help us understand the Trinity's role. And even as I say that, I want to note that the works of the Trinity are inseparable, right? So creation is a great example where we see in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image. And so there's no point in which one part of the Trinity acts alone, but specific to the relationship of the Father and Son, consider when Jesus said that he and the Father are one, and that's in John 10, verse 30, and John 17, 21. And then, of course, John chapter 1, where from the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in the chapter, the Word became flesh. So you see that each role of the Trinity is distinguished. It is emphasized in Scripture. Uh, as an example, the Father is the, seen as creator. The Son is distinguished as redeemer and mediator. And the Holy Spirit distinguished as the agent of sanctification, and yet each one inseparable, co-equal with the essence of God, all existing eternally as one God. So to just sum this up, if we approach this question with the human experience being the standard, which is the father-son human relationship, then we're going to fail to understand the Trinity. We must take what God has revealed to us by faith in his word and remember that many times in scripture God tells us that he is not like us. Okay, next question goes to Mike. Can someone be a Christian if he does not believe in Jesus as the human incarnation of the second person of the Trinity? No. 
<laughs> you want me to elaborate? Just a little bit. Okay. Um, I say no, but then I would, would preface that by saying understanding it and rejecting it or believing it are two different things. But no one that rejects that truth can be a, can be a believer because it is an intricate part of the gospel. And there's two truths tied up in that question. Truth number one is that Jesus was divine. He is part of the Trinity, and he is divine. And that truth, uh, there's a lot of places in Scripture you could go. I would go to John 1, where it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think that's pretty clear. There's a lot of other places you can go. Jesus himself said, me and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. The Pharisees understood completely what he was saying. That's why they threw stones at him when he said those things and eventually murdered him and took him to the cross because of that truth. Truth number two is that Jesus was and came in the flesh. He was holy God and holy man. That's truth number two. I think Philippians chapter two is a great place to go to see that in Scripture, that's called the kenosis, kenosis chapter where it uses the word Jesus being equal with God, did not consider himself equal to God, but he emptied himself. He set aside certain divine attributes. He didn't get rid of them. They weren't gone. He just voluntarily chose not to use them. But he became flesh. He lived a sinless life and died on the cross. And that's part of the gospel. If he had not come, God had not come lived life as a human in the flesh, lived a perfect life, he would not have been able to be the sacrificial lamb. He would, we would have no mediator. We would have no high priest. The gospel falls on its face. And that's what separates Christianity from all other religions. It's about what you believe about Jesus. And those two truths have to be believed in order for a person to be saved. I am impressed. You have no notes that you're looking at. That's really. Are you looking up there? No. no. Okay. That's just the question. I know. That's very impressive. Okay, Ben, we're going to give you a question that uh, books have been written and arguments back and forth for generations, and you're going to solve it in the next two minutes. Um, why did Jesus call people to come to him if they're not part of the elect and thus unable to do so? Why are they still responsible to believe? First of all, I would like to thank you, Bruce, for giving me that question, all the questions. Um, I would start by stating what we do know from Scripture. We know that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that Christ came to redeem those who are in rebellion, who are his enemies, and that there is no other means of salvation but Jesus Christ and turning from our sins and putting our hope and trust in him. That is clearly taught in Scripture. Then there is a likewise truth that could appear contradictory, but is not. But we know that God has chosen, before the foundation of the world, his elect. He has chosen out a people to be set apart, to be his bride, to be the bride of, of Christ, and that we are unable in our sins and trespasses, are spiritually, we're described as spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, spiritually blind. A dead person cannot give themselves life. A blind person cannot give themselves sight. It has to come from outside of them. And, and likewise, we are spiritually in that condition. The Spirit of God has to breathe life into us, has to open the, our spiritual eyes to enable us to come to faith in Him. So we have this tension, if you will, humanly speaking, that we cannot fully grasp, that we are responsible to come to Him. We must, and not just responsible, we are commanded, Acts 17, when Paul speaks to those in Athens, and he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It is a command. Uh, everyone is to repent, and those who do not repent will be punished for their sins. We are not engaging in sin against our will. We love our sin. It is not something that we are forced to do something against our will. We are engaging in our sin, and we love our sin, and we do not and will not choose Christ unless he intervenes and changes our hearts and minds. What I will just add to this question, or an answer that I think is helpful, we need to get this right because there's ditches on both sides of this. You can lean more towards the, well, man's responsible and God didn't choose anybody, so it's up to them, and therefore that's going to affect our evangelism and how we approach people and try to 
potentially manipulate and use man's tactics to get them to be saved, so to speak. And then the ditch on the other side is this hyper-Calvinism of, well, if no one can come to him unless he chooses them and it's up to him, then I don't, what do I need to open my mouth for and tell anybody and plead with anybody? But those are both erroneous. We must embrace both. We are responsible. Others are responsible to put their hope and trust in him. And yet understanding Christ is the one who's got to do the work. It's not us. We, that does not lighten our responsibility. We're the means. We're the, the mouthpiece for the Lord. We are called to reason from the scriptures, just like Paul. He reasoned in the synagogue continually, trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ and the only means of salvation. So many volumes have been written on this topic, but that touches the tip of the iceberg, hopefully. Okay. Dave, where was the Garden of Eden located on earth? Yeah, you were wondering that, weren't you, Ben? Well, short answer is we don't know. Many commentators have, have spoken on this, but... What can we try and piece together to give some kind of of answer? Well, the first thing we're looking at is Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, which provides some geographical detail, obviously, regarding the Garden of Eden. And we see that it was in the east, a river flowed out of the garden and then divided into four rivers, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and Euphrates. And and many agree, although not all, that... um, the Tigris and Euphrates are, are part of that puzzle today where, where they're located uh, today. But Pishon and Gihon are missing. And nowhere in the Middle East today do we have what is described in Genesis chapter 2. So here's the biggest challenge is that we are looking at, or what the Bible is describing is pre-flood geography and topography. Obviously the, the flood completely changed the surface of the earth and I think somebody's coming in a very short time that's a lot smarter than me on this, right? So I think what I'll do is, is give two interesting facts that Ken Ham speaks specific on this topic, which may be helpful for you. So I'll give you something to think about. First, where the present Tigris and Euphrates rivers sit, there are hundreds of feet of sedimentary strata, much of which is fossil-bearing strata, which had to have been created during the flood. And and Ken Ham suggests here, and I think it's a strong argument, how could the perfect Garden of Eden sit atop billions of dead things before sin entered the world? That that couldn't be. So then we get into the question, well, what about the names of the rivers, the Tigris and and the Euphrates? Well, it's not an, it wouldn't have been an uncommon thing for Noah and his family to name rivers post-flood of rivers that they knew uh, pre-flood. There's examples all throughout history of rivers that are are named in different countries that are in previous countries, even here in the U.S. and in Australia. So we can piece some things together, but we cannot know for sure. And that is my final answer. (laughs) I'm going to answer the next question. It's a lengthy question, but uh, let me read it and then I'll answer it. It says, I recently became aware that a cherished Bible verse that often brings the reader hope can also be translated in a way that gives the verse a radically different meaning. The verse is Job 13, 15, and it reads, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. My study Bible has a footnote that presents an alternate translation that reads, Behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. Because I have no understanding of the original language that the book of Job was written in, I feel at a loss as to how I may read further into this. To sum up my question, does this verse show that Job was filled with hope in God or in this moment, was he actually hopeless? Well, Hebrew is a language which is not nearly as precise as the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. And in this case, the Hebrew word translated hope has a basic meaning of to wait for, to expect, to be patient. And so it means to hope in the sense of waiting patiently and expectantly for someone or something. The problem here is that some of the Hebrew consonants that are used here have a negative implication, while others have a positive implication. And so the Revised Standard Version, upon which the English Standard Version was based, translates this, Behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. I think the New Living Translation actually translates that negative viewpoint a little more understandably. It says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I'm going to argue my case with him. But every other modern 
version, including the ESV, renders it with the far more common understanding, which comes from the Masoretic text, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, this is one of those times where I wish the translators didn't feel the compulsion to include every possible translation in the notes uh, because it confuses people. I think it would be far better to leave the verse just as it is commonly understood among textual scholars and translators without throwing in lesser viewpoints and possibilities that the vast majority of them don't believe to be correct in the first place. So that's, that's my basic answer for that. Steve, what is the difference between the mind, spirit, soul, and heart? Are we born with a spirit or soul that is dead, or are we only born body and soul? What connects us to God, mind, spirit, soul, or heart? Well, first of all, I want to say that's a very good question, whoever sent that in. And it's a little complicated, so let me begin by saying... First consideration is when, when Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and so forth, he simply was saying we are to love God with all that's in us. We are to love him completely. We are to love him thoroughly. So understand that. Secondly, though there are distinctions with these terms, mind and, and heart and spirit and soul, there, there are distinctions between these terms. Sometimes in scripture they are used interchangeably. So as Bruce said, the, especially in the Hebrew language, it's hard to exactly nail this down. But generally speaking, the mind refers to our thinking, not only in Hebrew but in, in Greek. The mind refers to our thinking, our ability to reason, to uh, rationalize things, to our, our intellect. The heart, once again, refers to what we would consider our affections, as well as the very center of our personality. The soul, generally speaking, is that immaterial, invisible part of us that makes us a living being. God breathed into Adam. He became a living soul. Spirit is often used interchangeably with soul, and you can look that up on your own, but spirit is also, and this is why it's a little complicated, spirit is also used in scripture to refer to man's capacity to have a relationship with God. He has a spirit. So according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, prior to our salvation, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, which would mean we were dead in our spirit. Spiritually dead because we had no capacity at that time to have a relationship with God. But when we were born again, when we became alive, God made our spirit alive by giving us spiritual life, he gave us his life, so now we are in a relationship with him. So, folks, that's the best I could do. I did a lot of studying on this. It is uh, a little more complicated. Martin Lloyd-Jones has lots of pages on this. If you want to do more research on your own, Bruce, I forget the name of it, but what did John MacArthur and Dick Mayhew have it's a systematic Bible, yes, systematic Bible doctrine, biblical like that. theology. Yeah. I think is uh, they have a lot on this. You can just look up in the back, heart and mind and spirit and soul, and you can see how these terms are used often interchangeably. So that's my answer. Okay, Mike, we're coming back to you. In Matthew twelve thirty six, Jesus said, "But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment." How are we held accountable for every word we have said? I would first say right off the bat, I think scriptures like this teach us how important it is, the words that we speak. Um, I'm also reminded of what James said when he talked about the tongue being a blazing fire, fire and deadly poison. So our words are very important. But the question is, how do we give an account for every careless or worthless word that we speak. And I think to get a real good understanding of this, we do have to read the passage. So I'm going to read a little bit in context. And if you look um, in Matthew where that comes from, if you start reading a few verses before, you'll see that the Pharisees have just uh, accused 
Jesus of healing a demon-possessed man by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's the context where these words are spoken. I'm going to pick up in verse 33. It says, "Either make the this is Jesus talking, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that you people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's the context. When you read the context, it then, I think, makes it much more clear that who Jesus was talking to I do not believe that believers have to give an account for every word that they've spoken. I believe that he's talking to unbelievers, and I know that because of several things. Um, one is which he used the phrase, you will be condemned, and he says when that will happen. It will be on the day of judgment. And so when you study the day of judgment in the Bible, you'll see that that um, is the great white throne judgment which believers are not standing at. That's unbelievers. Unbelievers are raised at the day, on the day of judgment to stand in judgment for everything. And they're going to be condemned by their actions, which would include the words that they speak. Believers are never condemned. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So thank God that I am not going to be condemned by my words, but it should be important to me because I should be being sanctified daily by the words that I speak. This next question, uh, I didn't tell Dave this. I, I gave this question to Dave, and I didn't tell him that this question came from the little group I told you about last time of some inmates in the Florida State Prison System who have come to faith in Christ, and they have their own little group called Calvin's Corner, and they study together. And this question came from them. It says, Jesus warned his disciples 14 times in the Gospels to watch out for leaders who would twist the truth and mislead people. In other places, God's Word instructs His people to test teachers, preachers, and leaders in the church to prove that their hearts are in a right relationship with Him and that their lives and messages are consistent with the principles and standards of God's Word. My question is, what is the most reliable way to apply such tests which would prove their hearts are in a right relationship with Him? Well, the most <clears throat> reliable tests or tests are found in Scripture, of course, but I would first have you consider why Jesus so often told us to watch out for those who would twist the truth and to mislead people. Uh, when you think about the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, of his day, they were self-focused, they were oppressive, um, they lacked humbleness, faith, they lacked repentance, uh, they added things to the word of God in terms of, of law. And, and these are just, of course, observations that we see throughout uh, the Gospels and then as you move into the New Testament where you have the early church that was being infiltrated uh, by false teachers, and we see a theme with these false teachers where Scripture is telling us what do they say about Jesus? What do they preach about Jesus Christ? And so much of the warning uh, on this twisting of truth, on this false doctrine, uh, we see again on who Jesus is is and was. And, and 1 Timothy 6 and, and, and 1 John, of course, we're going through this actually with uh, our, our men's Bible study. So you can ask questions like, do they preach sin and the need for repentance? Uh, do they know and use the word of God for every facet of life? Or is this simply just good sayings for your best life now? But to address this question uh, 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 more specifically, I think we can look to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3 which uh, uh, charges elders in churches and what they are to do. And Peter says to shepherd the flock with oversight willingly and not under compulsion. And he says, do this not for shameful gain, meaning everything that they do should be pointing you to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And then verse three, and, and perhaps the most important is, do this by being an example and not domineering. So you should see your leaders living this out before you. Uh, they should be examples of obedience to Christ and serving the church. And church leaders are far from perfect. <laughs> they make mistakes and, and they make decisions that you uh, may not always agree with, but they should always be pointing you to Jesus. They should always be pointing you to the truth of God's word as absolute truth. And they should be living examples 
uh, of obedient followers of Christ. And I would encourage those to to get to know your leaders, ask questions, uh, uh, talk with them so that you can make some of these observations. But you, to, to know the truth or, or, or to distinguish what is truth, you must know the truth. And so what you hear, you must filter through uh, God's word. Can I, I just want to add to that, Dave, I think that's excellent. That's, that's great. And I agree with everything. But one of the marks of a cult or a false religion is that it's headed up by a messianic type leader who is controlling and who uh, does not point people away from himself to Christ. And Dave is absolutely right. True leaders, um, true godly leaders promote Christ, are right on the doctrine of the gospel, and uh, they do not preach themselves. That's what Paul said. We preach Christ. We do not preach ourselves. We're just simply servants of him. So even in evangelical churches, if a man is right on the gospel, but he is the, uh, he's the hero of every story that he tells you, that's, a, that's an indication that uh, his heart is not really right with the Lord. Those who are right with the Lord point away from themselves to Christ. Okay, next question I will answer. It's a lengthy one again. Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. On the surface, we would all agree with this verse, but all one has to do is think about this verse in light of the gospel and it suddenly becomes much more troubling. This verse seems to indict God since God justifies the wicked every time he saves a sinner. And how does he do this? He does it on the basis of condemning the righteous since he poured his righteous condemnation on the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Be assured I'm asking this question sincerely and I love the Lord, but I don't see an easy answer to this. As I grow in my understanding and love for the gospel of Jesus Christ, a question like this presents a stunning conundrum to me. Well, first of all, let me say that this question indicates that the person who asked this question is thinking deeply about God's word and that's wonderful. But the answer to this question, to this verse, is that this verse does not apply to God. It is speaking only of those human beings who pervert justice by condoning evildoers and condemning the innocent. Uh, God is holy. That is, he is utterly set apart from everyone and everything else in creation. And thus, he's not bound by the same rules that apply to his creatures. For example, in Romans 9, 14 and 15, God says... Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And then Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? And his answer is, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So because God is infinitely and absolutely holy, he is set apart from us and is not bound by the same rules as his creatures. The question's author is correct that God does justify the wicked. And he did so by condemning his righteous son. But this verse is speaking of unrighteous judgment by humans. Their actions are an abomination to him. He hates those who knowingly justify evil and condemn righteousness. Okay? Ben, in Acts 15.20, James says to tell Gentile believers, but that we write... To them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication, from, from what is strangled and from uh, blood. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9, specifically verse 4, Paul makes a point of saying that the things sacrificed to idols are okay to eat since an idol is actually nothing. Is this a conflict between what the apostles originally told the Gentiles and what Paul told the Gentiles about eating food sacrificed to idols? It is not a conflict. And I will tell you why. Uh, Context is key for understanding Scripture as a whole. So if you just jump into Acts 15, the context is the Jerusalem Council in the Gentiles coming to faith and what action they needed to take. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the law? What do they need to be doing? So the instructions that the church at Jerusalem send to these Gentile believers is instructing them to abstain from these things, what we just read in Acts 15.20, contaminated by idols, fornication, things strangled, and from blood. One of them being a moral issue, fornication, clearly, and then the others dealing with, with the law. And the idea here is don't unnecessarily 
offend the consciences of the Jewish people, who this would be highly offensive to, to be eating things that had been strangled or contained blood or that had been sacrificed to idols. So it's with keeping in mind the other unsaved people, specifically the Jewish people that are around them, that your testimony would be ruined. If you did this, they would be turned off completely to anything that you would have to say about the gospel. Then we shift to 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's instruction to the believers. And he says, yeah, there's no such thing as something offered, uh, food offered to idols. Those don't truly exist. There's one true and living God. And this is a conscience thing. And then he goes on in 8 verse 7. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And he says, so don't do it if it's going to hurt your brother. If there's a weaker brother and it's going to bother them and really be a cause, uh, a struggle for them, don't engage in something that your conscience may be free to do. Eating this food that had been offered to idols means nothing to you, does not affect your conscience in any way. But if there's a fellow believer that it does, love them enough to sacrifice this freedom that you have in order to love them and not cause their conscience to stumble. So two different contexts here that are not contradicting whatsoever. And I would just add that uh, Steve recently preached on this in 1 Corinthians if you were here in the evening. Answers in 1 Corinthians. And you don't even have to do a uh, registration. That's right. You can pick any seat. That's right. (laughs) Dave, if you're a believer with the Holy Spirit living in you and you get drunk and uncontrolled, would the Holy Spirit leave you? The, the answer is no, and that's, of course, not a justification for the sin of drunkenness. But I take that this question is coming from Ephesians 5.18, which says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. When a person comes to faith in Christ, he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And John told us this about the words of Jesus found in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, that the Spirit would come to those who believe. And then Paul said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, and I'm going to read these verses, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us as believers. And Paul says plainly, you have been redeemed, you have been purchased, and you are not your own. You are a child of God. And this indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. So then we ask, how do we know that this indwelling of the Spirit is permanent? Well, Jesus himself told us in John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus was talking to the disciples here, but the scope of the promise is for all believers. So if we go back to Ephesians 5, 18, We as believers are given a command to avoid the sin of drunkenness. That is, to be under influence or control from something that is sinful, but rather we are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this verse, remember, sits within a broader passage where Paul is telling the believers at Ephesus and and us as readers of Scripture to avoid many other sinful things like sexual immorality, covetousness, and foolish talk. And so, you know, the last thing that I want to say on this in terms of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is remember that this is a fulfillment of God's promise to us and a guarantee of salvation. In Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, these are precious words of comfort for the believer. And I want to read these, which says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So while we want to avoid this sin of drunkenness, of course, genuine faith in Jesus means that you cannot lose your salvation and it means that you will not lose the Holy Spirit either. Okay, Mike, Exodus thirty-one seventeen says, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. 
This seems to say that God was tired after the six-day work of creation. Does God get tired? I think the best interpretation of Scripture is other Scripture. So to answer that question, I mean, it does on the surface seem to suggest that God was tired and needed a little rest after creation. But if you go to Isaiah forty twenty-eight, I believe, uh, Isaiah says, Do you not know, do you not understand, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. I think that one is very clear. It doesn't suggest anything. It says God does not get tired. And it's because of the way the Bible uses words sometimes in a way that we would understand it. But I think if you go back and really think about that, the verse in Exodus, I think, does use the words he ceased from his creation. I like that because in Genesis it says he rested some in some places or some versions. But God doesn't need a nap. He doesn't have to rest. He's not, he doesn't have a body. He's spirit. And I, I know, I remember one time when the Pharisees were attacking Jesus for healing on the Sabbath and he said, do you not know that the Father is working even until now and I am working? God never quits working. If he did, what would happen? We would, everything would implode, explode, whatever. I mean, God doesn't ever need rest. And so then the word becomes, what does the word refreshed mean? And if you go and look up the meaning in the original language, it has to do with taking a breath. And I think that's the picture it paints. God created, he stepped back, he looked at all he had made and said, this is good. He took a breath. Ah, this is great. You know, I'm satisfied with what I've done. We even use the word refreshed like that. A lot of bad stuff's going on and somebody, you see something good happens and you say, that's refreshing. So that would be the context and the phrasing that I think would explain that question. I love the scripture, he who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. Next question says, in the parable of the bridegroom and the ten virgins in Matthew 25, does that mean he was supposed to marry ten women? Uh, Did someone from Muslim ask this? No, the answer is no. Uh, The virgins in the story were the bridesmaids at the wedding. The typical Jewish wedding of that day would have ten bridesmaids and ten groomsmen in attendance. The parable does not at any time indicate that they were to marry the bridegroom, only that the wise virgins went into the marriage feast while the unwise virgins were left out. My point is that we have to be careful not to impose our modern cultural expectations on the text when we read it. Also, we must not stretch the meaning of a parable beyond the principle that Jesus was intending. Uh, In this case, he's illustrating the importance of being ready at any moment, every moment, for Christ's return, because he may return when you don't expect it. And those who are unprepared will be left out of the kingdom. But no, uh, those were bridesmaids not to become the bride. Okay. Steve, do you see the 144,000 in Revelation 7 as a literal number or a symbolic number? Please explain. Let me explain to you what that, what that means. The 144,000 are Jewish people who during the tribulation the Lord is going to save and they are going to be fantastic, zealous witnesses all over the world sharing the gospel. So the question is, uh, do I believe that 144,000 number is literal? The answer is yes. And I believe that because of my hermeneutic, which means my approach to interpreting the Bible. You have to interpret the Bible literally unless... The context indicates otherwise. If you don't do that, folks, you have no clue as to what anything means. And if you look up Revelation 7, you'll see, and I don't know how how Scripture can make it any clearer, the Apostle John goes through each of the tribes of of Israel, and he mentions 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, as if God is, is telling us, get it, this is literal. So yes, I do believe it's 144,000, literally, of Jewish people. And throughout the book of Revelation, there are many numbers there. If you don't take them literally, then you're clueless, because everything then becomes subjective. If the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is not a thousand years, then then what is it? Then what is it? So uh, the answer to that, Bruce, is yes. 
Well, then, if we're not in the tribulation now, then how do you explain to the families of Christians overseas who are being martyred for their faith that things are going to get worse, but true Christians won't be here to endure that? Can't the tribulation be taking place now with all the many horrible things happening daily? Well, there's no question horrible things are happening. And when we, uh, there was a time during the worst of uh, the COVID crisis where it really did feel like tribulation environment. But no, we're not in the tribulation. I'll tell you why. But first, let me say, what would I say to people? Well, we cannot interpret scripture by our experience. I think that's foundational. We, we interpret our experience in light of the scripture. So you, you, you can't be trying to explain things just experientially. Secondly, the tribulation period begins according to Daniel chapter Nine, with the signing of some type of a treaty, probably a peace treaty, between the nation of Israel and the Antichrist. That has not happened yet. Uh, often people think, well, once the rapture comes, then the tribulation will begin. No, it is the peace treaty that will be signed between Israel and the Antichrist. He is called the man of sin, the Antichrist. And according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he has not been revealed. He wasn't revealed back then. He hasn't been revealed now. We are not in the tribulation yet. Ben, connected to this, from the opposite perspective that you see in people debating eschatological issues. This question says, while he was on earth, Christ taught about the present age and the age to come. Why would we not presently be living in the millennium? Well, and I'll use the same word my father just used. The, it comes down to your hermeneutic and how you're interpreting, and how you're interpreting scripture. M- millennium, by definition, is 1,000. It's 1,000 years. So I understand post-mill view, a-mill view would, uh, would embrace not a literal thousand years that we're in, we're in the millennial kingdom or we're in this kingdom age that started after Christ's ascension until Christ returns again. But again, if we're taking scripture literally, Revelation yeah. chapter 19 through 21, make this abundantly clear. Just reading the first few verses of Revelation chapter 20, 1 through 3, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. It's, again, if it comes down to, if Revelation already occurred, 70 AD or at another time or isn't literal, then you're going to have a completely different perspective on on how you're going to have to read into these numbers and interpreting them. But Revelation 20 makes it clear, following the the seven-year tribulation, there's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan will be thrown into the abyss temporarily for that thousand years, then he will be released, rebellion, and then he will be sent off into hell. We certainly are living in the last times, in end times, but we're not in the thousand-year reign. Two just follow-up observations, things to think about. One, we start out in Genesis taking the, the numbers literally, don't we? Six literal day creation, not ages that millions of years that eventually we got to these things. Why would I start out taking Genesis literally, but end scripture with spiritualizing or not taking those numbers literally? I think you have to wrestle with that and think through that if you're not landing on a thousand year reign, why not? We, we start with Genesis that way, literal understanding of the, the numbers, and we shouldn't change our hermeneutic when it comes to the end, end times. I would also point out in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus, just before his ascension, Jesus is asked about the future earthly millennial kingdom. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He could have said, we're in it. Don't worry. We've, it's begun. My ascension kicks it off, and here you go. And he says, what? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It hasn't come yet. It's not for you to know. It is future. It is coming. I think that's a very compelling argument for looking at this. Christ could have brought incredible clarity if we were in the millennial kingdom or it wasn't a literal thousand year and it was started then. And I would add to that that 
the Satan will be bound for a thousand years, the book of Revelation says, and yet First Peter 5 says that the devil walks about like a prowling lion seeking whom he might devour. We are not in the millennium. I agree with my younger brother. <laughs> Steve, Matthew 24, 29 to 31 says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the one end of the sky to the other. My question is this. Obviously, this occurs after the tribulation, and the people who the angels are gathering are elect believers. Is Jesus teaching a post-tribulation rapture, or is this the second coming? If it is the second coming, who are these elect believers who are being gathered together? Excellent question. The answer is this is the second coming of Christ, and these believers are those who have been hiding from the Antichrist. Remember Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spoke referring to Daniel chapter 9 of the abomination that brings desolation. The point there being it, it brings desolation on the temple so that the Jewish people are told by Jesus, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see this, the abomination that makes the temple desolate is the Antichrist sitting down halfway through the tribulation declaring himself to be deity. And Jesus said, when you see that, get out of Judea. Don't even go back into your homes and get your cloak. Just leave as quickly as you can. And woe unto you if you are a mother nursing in that day. Or woe unto you if you are pregnant in that day. The point is, flee. And that's exactly what these believers have done. In the book of Revelation, it speaks about the Antichrist pouring out his wrath on Christians, on Jewish people, on Jewish Christians in particular. And these are people who have fled from the Antichrist. They are now coming back and they are being regathered to be brought to Jesus who is returning to earth. They were those who came to faith during the tribulation? Yes, yes. So. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, continuing with this eschatological bent to the questions, Mike, the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 begins with the incarceration of Satan bound for a thousand years in the abyss. This starts the thousand year reign of Christ and the saints will rule with him. Who are these saints? Are they all of the redeemed or only some? Well, to answer that, I want to first go to the, again, back to the context and and, of course, we've heard about the scriptures where it talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years, and that's where we're at in the context. But then in Revelation 20, verse 4, this is where the question comes from. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And the reason I wanted to read that is because there's a key phrase there that I think helps us understand it, and it's, it says that this is the first resurrection. And generally speaking, and when you study the resurrections and the different resurrections in the Bible, you'll see that there's really two, generally speaking, resurrections. The resurrection of the wicked and the resurrection of the righteous. Or the resurrection of, to life and the resurrection to judgment. So there's really only two resurrections. But what gets confusing is when you read all the different scriptures on the resurrection of the righteous, it seems like they take place at different times. And I would say that's because they do. So there are stages of the first resurrection, Jesus being the first, being the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. And then the second resurrection would be when, as some have talked about, the church being raptured away before the tribulation starts. And then there's scriptures that talk about them coming back with Jesus at the second coming. And so this passage in, in Revelation 20 verse 4, I believe, is the third and last resurrection. And I believe that Daniel speaks of it. I think it, it shows that, uh, paints the picture of all 
saints being resurrected who had not been resurrected. The Old Testament saints are resurrected and then the, those who are martyred who lose their life during the tribulation are then resurrected. And the reason we know that, I think, if you go on and start reading, it talks about the rest of the dead not coming to life until after. And, and what that means is talking about the great white throne judgment. They come to, to be resurrected and stand before God. The second resurrection it's talking about is not for believers it's for the wicked so there's really only two resurrections so this paints the picture of the end of the tribulation period we're now entering into the Jesus is the literal kingdom of, on earth for a thousand years and all the saints are going to be with him who's on the thrones Steve might want to speak on that but there's there's many passages to talk about Jesus was talking about to the disciples and he said don't you know that you will sit on 12 thrones and, and judge the 12 tribes. This passage talks about the, well, those who were beheaded sitting on thrones. There's other passages that talk about, don't you know that all of you will judge the world? So I believe in some capacity, all saints are going to be involved in, in judging and ruling and reigning with Christ, but that's my answer. I agree. Steve has nothing more to say. Okay. <laughs> Steve, as I understand, the question says, as I understand, the only people we're still on earth when Christ begins this millennial reign will be believers who have survived the tribulation. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is briefly let loose and musters up an army of people that still wants to reject Christ. Who are these rebels? After all they've seen and lived through, how can this be? Doesn't everyone know that at the end of the millennium, the great white throne judgment is coming? Who would foolishly join up with Satan at this point? I mean, if Satan has been bound, he hasn't influenced them like he does now. So how can this be? Maybe this tells me more about sin than I can imagine. Well, you're right. And this question is right. And the person is right. Those who initially enter the kingdom are believers in natural bodies. And they will have children. And their children need to come to faith in Christ. They're not automatically believers so just like we want to lead our children to Christ and grandchildren and others, so these people will have to come to faith in Christ. Obviously, some will not, and they will be the ones who will rebel. Now, I think the question is saying it just seems incredible to us that they could know so much and see Christ and know the Word of God and yet still rebel. But my response would be that is the depraved human heart. And uh, it's true that Satan won't be around until right at the end. He's released for a little while. But the human heart doesn't actually need Satan to sin. It does quite well on its own. And we don't need Satan. So uh, think, of, think of Pharaoh, for example. He saw all the miracles done by Moses and Aaron, and yet he still hardened his heart. Think of the Pharisees. They saw Christ, God in human flesh, and they saw, they saw him do miracle after miracle. They knew about him raising Lazarus from the dead. They heard his treasured words, and yet they, they hated him and they killed him. So I think this just reveals that the unsaved heart does not believe in God's word. These people can look and see, yes, I can read in the Bible, there's a great white throne judgment coming. I don't care. I don't believe it. And I'm rebelling anyway. And I think that's the best we can say, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Okay, wrapping up these, these sort of questions on eschatology. Ben, the question says, with all the different views on eschatology, including those who are reputable Bible teachers, such as R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, what is God's posture toward us regarding the different views held by his children? In other words, what if some of us have it wrong? Oh, well, some of us do have it wrong when we are on opposite <laughs> sides, uh, for sure. I mean, it is clear if you look at John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, I greatly appreciate their commitment to the Word of God, their high view of God's Word, and their studying of God's Word, and they've concluded differently on some secondary issues. These are not primary gospel issues. They've come to different conclusions from their study. I think that that honors the Lord. I think the key is the humility, having a humble attitude, but not a, well, we can't know, so I won't study. They were committed and are committed to studying God's Word. I remember, I think I've heard both of them say at one time or another, recognize I clearly have errors in my theology. And when asked, well, why don't you change it? They said, well, I don't know where that error is, or I would. They understood <laughs> and understand I don't have it all figured out. I think I do from God's Word and my study. I've got convictions, and I'm going to stand by them and, and be unapologetic about them. But at the end of the day, I understand that 
I don't have everything correct. My conclusions are based on my study of God's word, and I'm going to stand by them, and I think they're the most consistent. But at the end of the day, humbly recognizing that there's going to be things that we have wrong. And I think that needs to be our posture as well. On these secondary issues, these are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And to conclude differently, we should not be divided. It should not be a divisive thing. We should be unified on the gospel which is what we see modeled clearly from John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, and men, men like these that uh, differed on some secondary eschatology issues, baptism issues, but were lockstep together, shoulder to shoulder, when it came to the, the battle for the gospel. And, and I think you're absolutely right. We have to emphasize these are eschatology issues, which means issues of prophecy, not the gospel. All true believers hold to the same things about the gospel. Okay, leaving all the eschatology, catalogical questions behind. Let's last three questions. First one goes to Dave. Why did John the Baptist live in the wilderness and eat locusts and honey? Why didn't he go into the towns and villages where the people were? Well, I would first say I would have barbecued the locusts. Maybe low, <laughs> maybe low and slow, 225. Is Joe Trophimuck in the crowd? Maybe next lakeside event, some locusts, honey, nice finish. Okay. So why did he live in the wilderness? Well, it was prophesied that a voice would come from the wilderness and prepare the way. And we read of this in Isaiah 43. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And one of the things that we need to remember is that uh, back in ancient times, it was a common practice to send a herald before a monarch or a king would arrive somewhere to announce their arrival. And, and oftentimes they would even go beforehand to fix the roads, the actual route that they would have gone. But this was not so with Jesus. I mean, isn't this just perfectly in line with how the Messiah enter, entered the world lowly, no fanfare, born in a barn, greeted by shepherds? And here we have the same with John the Baptist being in the wilderness, which is not random. John's message was one of pulling people away from legalism, hypocrisy, and superficial religious practice, and to point them to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And where was those things taking place? That was taking place in, in the cities. Most people would likely not bother to go into the wilderness unless they were serious seekers of the message that John was preaching. And this is exactly in line with, and I'll end with this, and I want to read these verses. This is exactly in line with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Certainly John the Baptist was not of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And this characterizes John the Baptist to the T, not of noble birth, living out in the wilderness, eating and, and dressing different than society. He wasn't what people would expect, but it was exactly God's plan. Okay, next question says, what is the best way to approach teaching election to unbelievers or free will Christians? And I'll answer it. First, let me again acknowledge this question came from our little group of men at Calvin's Corner in the state prison. Uh, one of the members of that group is the son of a man in our church. This is an issue that comes up quite often in the debates between Calvinists and Arminians. There's two parts to this question. One, how do you teach election to unbelievers? And second, how do you teach election to free will Christians? So let me deal with each one separately. First, regarding unbelievers, let me just say that the doctrine of election should never come up in your gospel presentation to them. Jesus didn't tell us to invite people to believe in him on the basis that he chose them in eternity past and died specifically and particularly for them. Rather, we are to tell sinners that they're separated from God by their sin, that they face eternal condemnation, that they are in need of a Savior. Jesus is the only Savior, and he will save them only if they will repent of their sin and trust in him alone. So don't confuse them 
by adding election into your presentation of the gospel. And if one of them has heard about election and wants to bring it up, that's a diversion. Just tell them that it's a matter for a different discussion at a different time and then get back on track with the gospel. We used to teach on this many years ago in the evangelism explosion ministry that when people do that sort of thing, that's a diversion. They're trying to get you off track. Get back on track. Uh, Secondly, in regard to Christians who believe people have free will to believe in Christ or not, I think you need to first determine if the individual is teachable and open to understanding what God's Word teaches about election or if they are hardened in their viewpoint and they only want to argue with you. If it's the latter, don't waste your time trying to teach them. All they want to do is argue and debate. But if they're genuinely interested in knowing what the Bible says, I would take them to Romans 9, 8 to 23, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, Romans 8, 29, and to Jesus' words in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, as well as other places in Scripture that teach about God choosing his elect. And I would recommend that they read and study a good book such as James uh, Montgomery Boyce's book, The Doctrines of Grace. It's an excellent explanation on the doctrine of election as well as the other doctrines regarding the sovereignty of God and our salvation. But don't waste your time arguing with those who only want to argue and debate these matters. Instead, show graciousness to them. Remember, if they're truly believers, they'll be in heaven with you regardless of their incorrect doctrine here on earth. And once they're in heaven, they will know you were right. So, okay. Well, we're going to conclude with our last question, and it comes to Ben, and I'm going to let you have it. This is a unique question. It says, with the increase in UFO sightings, talk of aliens, and search for other life in the universe, does the Bible give us guidance as Christians on how to think and talk about these things? When I first got this question, I didn't think highly of it. I thought... This is a silly question, but the more I've thought about it, it really is a question that we need to think through. It's everywhere in the news, and it's coming up more and more. We need to include our biblical understanding that we study God's Word with understanding these types of things or trying to understand these things. As much as we might like to think Men in Black movie and things of that nature help explain that some people might be aliens because they're weird and they act strange. I don't buy into that. I'll say up front, I don't believe. I'm not convinced in the existence of alien life or life in other universes. I just don't see it lining up biblically. It certainly gets a lot of attention, as I said, on the news. And I want you to think about what would be the underlying assumption of most of the people that are pushing the idea of aliens and UFOs and all those kinds of things. It is based and rooted in uh, much of evolution. You think about life arriving on this planet, not by a creator, but by being spontaneous and evolving into something complex. And so the conclusion could be if that happened on Earth, here, that why couldn't it happen somewhere else far away? And they've evolved. Life just spontaneously happened and they've evolved and now they've come and they're visiting us or we're going to have encounters with them. What do we know from Scripture? We know that all life is from creation, that God created all life. So if there are aliens in other planets, that God would have given them life. They didn't evolve on their own or come to be somehow apart from God's plan. Isaiah 45, 18, we're told that the earth was formed to be inhabited, which would therefore infer that other planets were not meant to be inhabited, but specifically says that the earth was intended and meant to be inhabited. That is Isaiah 45, 18. We also see in the creation account, day four, uh, Genesis 1, 14 tells us that the celestial bodies were made for these reasons, for signs, seasons, and to number days and years. Uh, The stars were made for mankind on earth, and man is central to God's plan. I just also think it would seem odd that if aliens existed and God created them in another universe or another planet, that he didn't tell us, it would just seem odd. Uh, 
that it would not be any indication. We have a lot of future events we've talked about, what is coming in the future, tribulation, millennial kingdom, reigning. You would think that the invasion of aliens or the encounters of aliens might be mentioned. Again, we have to just think through these things reasonably and try to logically uh, think through these. And my last point that I would just say is Scripture tells us that all creation fell in Adam, and as a result, death came. So, death comes to all apart from Christ. So, therefore, if there are aliens, that extraterrestrial beings, they will die. Death entered the world through Adam, and death, they would also die as a result. Christ died to save humanity. He made us in his image. Uh, We are not told that aliens were made in his image, or that aliens exist, and if they did exist, that they were made in his image. We're told that man was made in the image of God, and he came to redeem his people. So there's a lot to think about. I would, a great resource, Answers in Genesis, you can type in Google search, Ken Ham, aliens, and you will see quite a few articles, really helpful, just reasoning biblically, trying to think through arguments and and trying to wrestle with the issues. So I would commend that resource to you. I am so glad you clarified this because we had a pug dog who looked just like E.T. And now I feel so much better knowing. Glad to assist. Well, we actually did it and only ran a few minutes over. So uh, we got through all the questions. Uh, and I think they did a pretty good job. Don't you think so? I think so. so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask if, uh, Dave, would you close us in prayer? Well, Father, we're thankful that as we think through these questions, we know to go to the truth of your word, Lord. And you've revealed so much to us about yourself, about future events, how we should live our relationship to you. Uh, I just thank you for these men in their study as they think critically through these questions. Thank you for our congregation and putting these together. And as uh, they wrestle with these questions, Lord, I just pray that, again, we would always go back to your truth, keeping Jesus as the focus, Lord. Bless the rest of our evening, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.